Hello and welcome everyone to the Fate of the Union podcast, a weekly review of the biggest issues in national politics given from a conservative perspective. The show will also periodically address current true crime cases from across the country. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk about the fate of the union. By all accounts, the 46th president of the United States to be inaugurated next January will, in fact, be Joe Biden. Uh, As I'm sure a lot of you have also heard, there are ongoing legal battles uh, initiated by the Trump campaign in order to expose some voter fraud uh, of most relevance in the Rust Belt states and in states where it really came down to the wire, at least as being the last outstanding states to report a winner for their uh, respective electoral votes. It does seem, in the interest of full disclosure, that these legal battles aren't going to overturn the results of the election and a more granular level not overturn the winner of the electoral votes in each respective state. However, I think it is useful to see where these lawsuits take us. There have already been reports that certain votes were counted when they were either not postmarked at all or postmarked too late uh, after Election Day and were nevertheless included in the vote count for each state. There has also been reports, uh, most notably from Michigan and Wisconsin, of deceased former citizens of the state actually somehow casting a vote in this year's election. Again, if you look at some of the last elections exposure of either voter fraud or simply a miscounting of votes, it seems to be safe to say here that any reversal or disqualification of votes in each of these states is not going to amount to the tens of thousands uh, needed to overturn what would be uh, a Democrat victory and in some cases turning blue of these states. But I still think it's interesting to see what is an accurate depiction of voter fraud in the country. Because you could imagine on a more local level that it could voter fraud and, and vote miscount could have a more profound effect in that in those elections, obviously a lot less people vote. Any manipulation of the counts would have a more significant effect since smaller amounts of votes will make a bigger difference and and sway the percentages in a lot bigger way um, in, in smaller elections. So we'll keep an eye on that going forward. But of particular relevance for conservatives across the country at this point would really be the outstanding 
election of two Georgia senators to be a runoff election come this January. And in, in, in the first what will be a runoff race in Georgia in January, we have John Ossoff versus David Perdue. Now, this came down to about a 1.7 percentage point difference in the election this fall. And looks like it'll be as razor thin going forward. John Ossoff has been a younger up-and-coming what at least progressive Democrats have tried to posture as an up-and-coming star. He hasn't really had the track record to back that up yet, but that's the way they kind of fancy him. And he's going up against David Perdue, uh, again, less about a 1.7% uh, difference in the polls in November. The other race being uh, Democrat Raphael War Warnock, versus Republican Kelly Loeffler. Now, in November here, we saw that Warnock did edge Loeffler by about 7% uh, percentage points, which on its face can seem pretty significant. But if you look closer at the election, the third-place uh, finisher was also a Republican. So Loeffler does have at least a little bit of reliability to maybe pick up some of that third-place finisher's vote in a straight-up head-to-head election with Warnock and, by all hopes, eclipse the gap that was uh, about seven percentage points here in November and overcome that for a victory in January. And as far as the country is concerned, the significance of this is as follows. Right now, the Senate count, as far as Republicans versus Democrats, is 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats. So the Democrats are trying all uh, they can. You've seen former Democrat candidate Andrew Yang and others move to Georgia to not only have their own votes counted uh, in that election in the runoff, but also help in the efforts to uh, prevail in both of these races. And the Democrats need to go two for two here for the simple reason that that would, of course, result in a 50 to 50 tie in the Senate. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, in that case, uh, any proposed uh, law that comes up for a Senate vote and falls to the 50-50 dead heat tie, would then be kicked over to the Vice President of the United States, who would act as a real tiebreaker, a 101st vote to settle any dead heat tie at 50-50. And, of course, we know that that, that tiebreaker would be Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And going forward, that would mean that try as they might, uh, Senate Republicans would at best be able to produce a tie and eventually what would really effectively be a loss for any proposed legislation that they try to defeat in the Senate. And we've already seen these two races get pretty dirty, pretty down in the mud. Um, Raphael Warnock 
appears just by appearance and, and presentation may not seem as, as truly radical as he is. But if you parse through some of the speeches and some of the public statements he's made, um, it really shows his true colors as far as being on the true far radical left. He's outright said that uh, President Trump's legal team and those who support him have a duty to, quote, repent to the rest of the country for the sin of supporting President Trump. And both he and John Ossoff, for that matter, the Democrat in the other Georgia Senate race, have supported efforts either by suggestion or really outright explicitly stating that there should be some kind of public statements of public shaming for those who have supported President Trump and supporting the kind of list making that you've seen from other uh, congressional members such as the squad and AOC that we really need to put full spotlight on those who have supported President Trump in the past and really for a very clear purpose. It's not for a reconciliation of any kind. It's not for a for an effort at unity. They've heard supposed efforts of unity are coming from the Biden administration. It's really for, again, the public shaming the negative effects that it would have for certainly professional reputation for those that are publicly named going forward. So this is going to be a dead heat tie, a dead heat battle, rather, going into the next couple months. Um, I think that it's going to be uh, a close race, but I do think that actually Republicans pull out both uh, races and go two for two and thus would lead uh, any Senate votes, assuming everyone votes according to party affiliation at a final vote of 52 to 48. Uh, like I said earlier, I think uh, Kelly Loeffler overcomes the deficit demonstrated in the November race once she picks up some support uh, that was previously uh, votes casted for the third place Republican finisher and uses that to kind of vault ahead of Raphael Warnock and end up the victor in her race. Uh, whereas I think David Perdue also uh, overcomes what is a very, very thin race uh, as far as the November numbers are concerned, and really capitalizes on both being a more seasoned politician than John Ossoff, but really counting on the fact that John Ossoff has had his foibles. Uh, he doesn't do well uh, publicly in public speaking and trying to get his message across. He's, while a certainly a legitimate candidate for the Senate, he has gotten this far. There is an air, judging from the Democrats' support of him, that perhaps he should be a little bit farther along. They like, would have liked him to achieve a little bit more by now, at least if you go by their assessment and their description of what they really think he is within their party. So, well, the work is, is definitely ahead of us conservatives, and there's a lot of work to be done. I think right now, if we put boots on the ground and we do put 
the man hours in down in Georgia. We can look forward to two hard-fought, albeit, but two victories and make it a 52-48 to 48 Senate going forward in 2021 in favor of the Republicans. So we will continue to keep an eye on both of those very influential runoff races down in Georgia. In other news, this may be off of some people's radar, but I think it's indicative of some of the cultural issues that are still not really being understood and really not being comprehended as far as the effect for those people outside of the culture wars. And let me explain. Here's an article from last week from Outkick the Coverage. That's Clay Travis's outlet. I encourage everybody to go over and give it a read. This particular article discusses ESPN's recent layoffs. ESPN announced on Thursday that there would be layoffs of 300 employees and that 200 open positions would go unfilled. So really, it's a net loss of 500 jobs over at ESPN. The network faces challenges from the pandemic and cord cutting. Longtime ESPN anchor Bob Lee blasted Disney's decision to cut jobs, saying that he, quote, he saw, quote, countless decades of journalistic experience and expertise jettison, end quote. So far, a couple writers and some who work behind the scenes have announced they are out. Now, that's not surprising since we know from the previous mass layoffs at ESPN back in 2017 that many of the people who get the axe in in furthering the mass layoffs are not going to be on-air talent. They're not going to be people that you see when you flip on SportsCenter. They're likely going to be the office jobs behind the scenes. They're going to be website-only writers, those analysts and commentators who don't appear on TV. They're going to cut those jobs first and then kind of work up in in inverse order of prominence at the network. Back in 2017 in the mass layoffs, which by all accounts will still be less than the rounds of layoffs going on currently, then you saw a lot of roles being being axed that were production assistants, um, behind-the-scenes uh, tech workers on the individual shows, uh, office workers at the network that really don't provide any commentary for sports per se. They just happen to work an office job at ESPN. So now again, we see a similar kind of breakdown that website-only writers and production workers on the individual shows and podcasts, they'll be axed, but not, at least by all accounts, not anyone that you would actually see on TV. I'm seeing here there's an, uh, an NHL draft uh, analyst writer who's out at ESPN, one of the producers for Dan Levitard's show. We'll get to him in a second. Um, even writers who have 
won pretty prestigious awards like the Baseball Writers Association of America awards for their achievements in in writing about the sport. They nevertheless are also finding themselves without a job due due to the cuts. But of course, this is predictable because while there is the overarching air of cord cutting that be people cutting their uh, cable subscriptions in pursuit of something that more finely addresses their viewing habits and won't break the bank as much, uh, there is also a note of other issues here. That being the infusion of sports and politics in, in content over at ESPN. We saw the same battle back in 2017 when the cutoffs came in the next financial quarter after the 2016 election. And similarly here, these cuts will be within the same financial quarter or the one quarter beyond the 2020 election, where you would assume that the most politically charged commentary would come up. That's always a topic of conversation across the country, of course. And that kind of at least puts a, a little bit of a halt on the narrative that this is all cord cutting. Cord cutting has been an issue for networks like ESPN ever since the advent of Netflix. And with the creation of similar uh, platforms like Hulu, like YouTube Red, YouTube TV, the issue of cord cutting is there has been there constantly for networks like ESPN. But it just so happens that the only time that mass layoffs at ESPN have happened in the last decade is the spring of 2017 and what will now be the fall of 2020 into the spring of 2021. So why is it that Within the last 10 years, there's two particular time ranges of about three to four months where all of the layoffs will occur. It's interesting to note that those two time periods, of course, come immediately following a presidential election. And when the network has amped up its social justice commentary and political commentary on the network, it would be no surprise then that in the months following those t- most tumultuous and intense political discussions, then those time frames in particular are the ones where jobs would be lost because while cord cutting is always present, ESPN is exacerbating an already existing problem. They're making it worse. They're throwing gas on a fire that's already been engulfing networks and the way they do business for the better part of the last decade. You saw some of those members of ESPN like Dan Lebertard who indulge in the far left social commentary blasting the network and really having a problem with them cutting all these these employees but it's also it's hypocritical. It's really very rich, similar to, again, going back to 2016, 2017, that the worst offenders of infusing politics with sports are also the ones to decry what are the inevitable results 
of delving into this kind of content and this kind of commentary on a sports network. And they're also the types of employees that will never themselves feel the repercussions. Um, While there is some talk that Dan Lombard's contract will not be renewed at ESPN, there are longstanding issues that he's had with the company aside from the inclusion of political commentary at the network and nevertheless is still not amounting to being fired. His job is not being terminated per se. But you hear this kind of commentary from people who whose inclusion of politics at in the content at ESPN is responsible for these jobs. They themselves are not going to hear feel the repercussions, but it's going to be those website writers, those beat reporters, those production assistants, and those behind the scenes working kind of normal nine-to-five office jobs at ESPN. They're going to feel the brunt of the effects and the very well-known effects at this point of including sports with politics and having their jobs excised from the company. And that's the real issue that I personally have with the inclusion of sports in with the inclusion of politics in sports commentary, particularly at ESPN, is that it's well documented at this point throughout the last several years that it's going to get innocent people fired. The people who either don't want politics in sports or don't really have a dog in the race either way, those people who work behind the scenes, they're going to have their jobs cut. They're going to get fired for the decisions made by the on-air talent who coincidentally and very conveniently will never feel the repercussions as far as losing the jobs themselves for engaging in this kind of practice and this kind of content that's proven to be a failure. It's proven to be detrimental to a sports media company's bottom line. So this is another story that we'll keep an eye on as well going forward. See if there are any more prominent names at ESPN who either are either terminated, which is pretty unlikely, or maybe at the expiration of their contract decide to go a different way and and go in a way that's either an independent venture, which would be really interesting um, for an on-air talent to do at this point in their career, or to jump ship in favor of another network that will maybe stay a little bit more true to form for sports commentary. So that does it for this week's episode of Fate of the Union. You can reach me, Franklin, the host of the program, on Twitter or Medium.com by searching Fate of the Union. And please visit our new YouTube page over at Fate of the Union as well. You can also reach us by email at Franklin, F-O-T-U, at gmail.com. This has been the Fate of the Union. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.